This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey guys, what's up? Kevin Jones, founder of Blue Wire. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Do me a favor, send it to one of your friends. We're growing this network, grassroots style. It takes everyone. You're a part of our team if you send this to one of your friends. All right, enjoy this podcast and appreciate your support. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast. My name is Dan Valley, your second favorite co-host around these parts. As we continue our deep dives into every NBA team's offseason and long-term outlooks, we're super excited to get to the Detroit Pistons today with Sham Mohile, the co-founder of Motor City Made and a co-host of the Two Gods and a Goose podcast. Follow him on Twitter. He's a fantastic follow. Great Pistons basketball mind. He can be found at Sham Sham God. That's at S H A M S H A M M G O D. I hope you kept track of all that because, again, you should definitely be following him on Twitter. Before we start speaking with Sham, I just wanted to remind, implore, beg, plead with everyone to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. We can also be found wherever else you consume your podcast, but iTunes is still the best way to let us know that you are out there, that you are listening, that you want us to keep doing what we're doing. Please take the 10 to 15 seconds out of your day, search Hardwood Knocks on iTunes, throw us that five-star rating, leave a review, subscribe to us if you haven't already. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Things are fun around here. At least we try and keep them fun. If you've done all those things already, please consider referring us, shouting out us on Twitter or stealing people's phones and subscribing to them to the Hardwood Knox podcast. They will thank you later. Trust us so long as they like basketball. If you haven't already, also please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can also follow Andy on Twitter at Andrew D. Bailey. The show can be found at Hardwood Knox. And you definitely need to be following the Blue Wire Podcast Network, which is putting out a ton of great content right now across all sports mediums. They can be found at Blue Wire Pods. With all that out of the way, we now get to Shamohile. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Favalli, coming at you once again without my co-host, Andrew Bailey. As we keep our team off-season preview train rolling, though, I am super excited to be joined by Sham Mohile, who is a co-founder of Motor City Made. Be sure to follow them at Mott City Made, M-O-T-C-I-T-Y-M-A-D-E. And he is also a co-host of the 
Two Gods and a Goose podcast. So be sure to check them out. You can search them on iTunes and they will come up everywhere if, uh, you, else. Basically, you consume your podcast if you search them as well. Before we dive into, if you haven't guessed already, some deep, deep, deep cut Detroit Pistons stuff, we do have to ask because we want to ask and we need to know. Sham, how are you doing? I am doing swell. How are you doing, Dan? I'm spectacular myself. I'm ready to talk. I'm ready to talk some Pistons. Um, so am I. One of the things I did not know, though, this is definitely not basketball related. Uh, since I, I guess I don't do enough Twitter stalking, but I didn't realize you were based out of Minneapolis. I am, yeah. Unfortunately, um, unfortunately. deal with the weather, but <laughs> yeah, gotta deal with the weather in the winter. But the summers are unbeatable here. So unbeatable. That's unbeatable. There's your sales pitch to free agents for the Timberwolves. So um, yeah, exactly. But we are here to talk about the Detroit Pistons who had a, I think, I don't know if I could say they outperformed expectations, but they definitely had an interesting season, 41 and 41, got into the playoffs um, in the Eastern Conference as the seventh seed, uh, excuse me, yeah, as the se- eighth seed, eighth eight seed. seed, wow, um, and I, it, Blake Griffin banged up with that knee, they were swept by the Bucks. He only played in two of the games. I can't believe he even, this isn't really a question. I just can't believe he even, looking at the size of that knee brace, I don't know how much it weighed, whatever he was wearing. I can't believe he made it through basically two games worth of action. Yeah, and I'm I'm, I'm sure he was on a myriad of drugs, um, but <laughs> I, I think it was more like he, he played for the fans. You know, like he, he clearly couldn't play that well. He um, couldn't really move that well. You saw the brace. He got surgery, I think, like a day or two after we were bounced out of the playoffs. So right. you could tell it was very serious. But playoff basketball isn't really common in Detroit. So, you know, having him be there and on the floor was a big, big step forward for the city and for the team. There were people who were, or I think there was a sector of Pistons Twitter that might have been retweeted or quote tweeted or trashed into my timeline by you <laughs> that wanted Detroit to tank um, at the end of the season. And it was like, as you pointed out, as others pointed out, what would have been the difference between getting like the 13th pick or the 14th pick right. and you get at least a, a first, like a round of playoff basketball? And like, what were you tanking for at that point? That was such a bizarre, I, I don't know what's created this culture where it has to be, you're going to win the championship or you need to tank basically. Uh, but I, I found that sentiment, particularly with the Pistons. Um, as you said, where you know playoff basketball over the past decade has been pretty scant in Detroit. I did not. Mm-hmm. I just didn't get that vibe. Well, it's it's really driven by like the local sports radio, and there's a certain radio personality in Detroit that for every team, if they're not a championship caliber team, he calls for the tank, and then he supports that that tank opinion with bogus stats, and and he he yells at people a lot. So you get this whole like crowd of people who are basically his minions that appear on Twitter, and that's where that sect kind of lies. That's good to know for, for future. But what what is interesting about that, and this isn't really on, on the tanking front, but has Blake Griffin's performance, and I had him when we did our All-NBA team picks, uh, he made, he got one of my forward spots. Does him sort of reaching that All-NBA form inoculate this team against the start-over talk over the offseason? particularly knowing their salary cap situation where it's not, you know, they can avoid the tax, but it's not this situation where they can just easily start over. So has that protected them from that discussion at all? Or is this a matter of 
people might doubt his ability to run it back at such an elite level, considering what he did as a pick and roll initiator, as an off the bounce shooter, and then considering he needed to have surgery basically as soon as the playoffs were over on his knee. Is does that create this worry that hey maybe this is you know we've gone as far as this core can take us already and there might be a need to move on? Well, I mean that that sentiment is always going to be there. If like if you're not winning championships, you're not competing for championships. The the there's a large number of fans that would rather see a complete teardown and a start over. Um, but I think it's important to look at the the expectations of the team. You know this this team has not won a, a playoff game in over a decade it's been 11 years since 2008 2009 season um that they haven't won um a playoff game and so yeah like it's nice to see blake griffin on that all nba team but it's it's like that team is not going to win a championship the way it's constructed there are just way there are way more talented teams in the east way more talented teams in the west and because of that you're going to get people that want to tear it down now if you look at the expectations of okay winning a playoff round or winning a, a couple playoff games, making noise, then you can see like, okay, maybe this team has potential to do that. But Blake Griffin has been like the, the shining light in a, in a tunnel of darkness um, for, for the Pistons. And so, yeah, like there is concern about his injury history and whatnot, but I think he proved more than anything this season that he can, he can transform his game to rely less on explosiveness and more on craftiness. Um, we saw a lot of good post play this year that commanded double, triple teams, and he was able to find open shooters. But the problem was is that the shooters weren't making shots. Um, I think the Pistons were either they must have been top five in, um, in well, I, I, well, bottom five rather in uh, three point percentage on open shots. So it's really difficult for the team to win games with the supporting cast around him so yeah it's it's tough but they could win a playoff game <laughs> that's it's and also there's just i don't know what you would because any any if you're going to rebuild it involves and i'm sure his name will pop up in the speculation i i saw a pistons twitter ratioed um uh an article from i don't even remember the website but the rumor that the miami he could trade for griffin but it was really just a piece um, I think it was written by Bleacher Report, um, the company that for which I work, where it was just a writer was looking at one of my coworkers was looking at uh, trade tar- t- trade targets that teams could try and consider or, or talk about, and Pistons Twitter came back pretty strongly and and ratioed it, and it does seem like he's been embraced <laughs> there. And even if he wanted to move him, I think his contract looks a lot better this this side of this season after the way he played. But if, with three years and one hundred and ten point two left on yeah. it, that's not something that you're going to get primo value on anyway uh, the the note you mentioned about his craftiness though was just like absolutely spot on and there are people that i still just think believe that that he's not i think he's so far removed from the lob city days that people understand that's yeah. not the crux of his game anymore but they don't he he's still sort of undervalued as a playmaker and this guy who can uh, finish possessions off the dribble uh, at the end of the regular season and I was looking this up before, he ran about as many pick and rolls per game as Kevin Durant. He mm-hmm. averaged more points than Kyrie Irving, more assists than Steph Curry, and made more pull-up threes than Bradley Beal. That's yep. like a hell of an offensive body of work, uh, particularly, as you said, just amid the spacing problems that Detroit had. They did miss a lot of wide-open threes. They weren't a particularly good team when it came to uh, catch-and-shoot efficiency. So just to, to play with the efficiency that he did for most of the year, I know he kind of tapered off towards the end while he was battling 
that knee injury, I would fully I, if like I again this core isn't going to brace the championship, but I think at this point you just at least for the next year or two that you embrace Griffin as the face as the just as the main central nucleus and and go from there and see what you can do in an Eastern conference that is still at least in the bottom half, pretty wide open. Yeah. I mean, I was one of the first people when that trade first went down and granted, I didn't know much about Blake Griffin because, you know, I lived on the East coast or the central time for the, for the most of my life. And so it was difficult for me to watch a lot of Clippers games. And so, yeah, we saw the highlights and stuff and I, I'm very guilty of it. I didn't know much about Blake Griffin and the other aspects of his game. And maybe they weren't as refined back when, like in his Clippers days, because he didn't really need to do as much with, you know, Chris Paul at, you know, uh, at point guard. But I was one of the first people to, to tweet out. Um, I think I said when the, like when the trade went down, I tweeted slob city. Um, cause I, I was like, oh, we're trying to recreate the whole Deandre, uh, Jordan and, and, uh, Blake Griffin tandem with Andre Drummond and now Blake Griffin, but Blake Griffin is now like three years older than that, that era. And he's not really the same guy. So I was like, why are they making this trade? And I was very against his contract as well, but this season, well, I guess tail end of last season. And then this season really gave me hope about, his longevity in terms of his contract. I think like no matter how how good he is, like he's not going to be at this level at the end of his contract when he's making nearly 40 million years uh for uh 40 million dollars and I I feel better about it because I think he can make people around him better. It's just that it really is upon the people around him to actually convert shots and and take advantage of these of the looks that they're getting um the the expanded spacing and yeah he's he's shot the he's shot the ball better from three than i had ever expected i mean he's he's doing crossover between the leg dribbles you know threes and it's it's was truly fun to watch but yeah that injury history is a little bit concerning to me still is um and moving on from him, and I think he's again. I think at least next year, this this might be a good vote, but I, there's a chance. I would think a pretty good chance that he matches this season's performance. It's not you know, maybe he's not going to play in as many games. Um, the hope should be that when you when you are in the Eastern Conference, that you don't need him to play in 75 games during the regular season. But I would think that this level is not unreachable for him next season. Yeah, I agree. Um, Andre Drummond, uh, who I know that you 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 artfully stand for is he officially underrated defensively and if so what is it about his the way he plays defense or what happens on defense especially in the half court that aside from the wonky on off splits which have been you know recited ad nauseum that make people criticize his defense so hard um okay so to your first point about Andre Drummond and being underrated defensively I I think he's come a long way. Um, when he first entered the league, he wasn't he wasn't that bonafide shot blocker. He wasn't a guy who really was like going to come in and make a huge impact defensively. Um, he was going to be a good rebounder no matter what. I don't think people realized how good he how I don't think I don't think people expected him to be as good as he is now. But I, I think people expected the rebounding to be there and also the offensive game to be there. But defensively, he was never supposed to be uh, like Rudy Gobert or anything even remotely close to that. So in terms of being underrated, I think he's come a long way. He's arguably the best perimeter defending big 
in the league. I mean, the Pistons put him on Giannis for the majority of the series. So that kind of goes to show how agile and mobile he is, as well as the strength that he has. Um, he pokes a lot of balls loose at half court from guards. Um, he's very quick with his hands. Um, the the one thing that he does need to work on, and he's he's actually gotten a lot better at it, especially this season, is protection at the rim. Um, but now going to your second point, uh, people, he he used to not give as much effort as people wanted, and we saw a lot of lazy running up and down the court, especially his first few seasons. Um, and you know, he was kind of late on, on help defense and, and whatnot. That's been a lot better. Um, I would say he's an average to an above average rim protector now when before he was a below average rim protector. Um, but I think he, um, I think he gets a bad rap because the perimeter defense is just so horrendously bad on the Pistons. I mean, especially from the point guard spot, both starting and backup that, He's he has to play help defense a lot more, and so when when fans see a shot at the rim from a point guard, they they see Andre Drummond late on the help, or they see him help, and then they see a lob to Andre Drummond's man, um, and Andre Drummond gets the blame for that. When in in reality, the containment from the guards is really bad. Um, so I think he gets a bad rap on that but he has made a lot of strides and I, and I and I do think people don't appreciate his defense as much as they should yeah the he opponents shot only 55.6 percent against him at the rim during the regular season uh which contesting at I think it was 6.5 attempts per game I've written down that's that's absolutely absurd and I would I definitely agree and I think that would explain a lot by when you look at the rim protection numbers though over the years they haven't always been great and uh teams defense or offenses excuse me have I won't say routinely, but there have been uh, seasons where they've gotten to the rim more frequently with him on the court. Um, I think over the past three or four years straight, um, three years straight now that I'm looking at it, that they've gotten to the rim more with him on the floor. But you explaining it by when you look at the Pistons personnel on the perimeter, he's not going to have time to play set defense a ton down there. And, you know, having Bruce Brown out there probably helped him a bunch this season. But when you're looking at some of the other guys who are lo- logging a bunch of minutes. Uh, Reggie Jackson has battled injuries for the past few years. Ish Smith, who's never been a, a good defender. Ditto for Langston Galloway, really. It, it kind of puts him in this, you know, it's not even, I can't even say head on a, a swivel state. Like, it's just this constant state of unrest, probably, if you're going to, when you're looking at the guards that he needs to rely on and, and you know, some of the wings to prevent dribble penetration. And he has, you know, the, the Buck series. Um, you watch him way more than I do, but I was taken aback at, again at how mobile he was. And we're talking about year whatever of his career, six, seven, and we're talking yeah. last game, 82, and I was still being taken aback by that. And there were moments during the regular season, too, where he is one of the bigs who can close out on jump shots really well uh, also. So I probably came into the season, and definitely at the beginning of the season, I was super hard on him and thought there was a, a good amount of regression there. But by the end of the season, uh, maybe because I follow you on Twitter, um, but also Duncan Smith out there and some of the Detroit Pistons beat writers, and trying to watch the Pistons a little bit more closely, especially towards the end of the regular season, I think I personally have a newfound appreciation for him and and just the the untenable workload or, or workload description that he has 
um, when looking at the personnel that's around him defensively in the half court. Yeah, and and I think it's tough too when you're kind of like when he he signed the max contract either last year or the year before, so it's it it puts a high expectation on him to perform at a max contracts level. But in reality, he's not he he can't be your second best guy. He like like the fact that he's the second best guy puts the spotlight squarely on him, and so he's overly criticized about everything he does, even though he does them at a pretty reasonable and and in some cases, very well fashion, you know, with, with rebounding, he's, he is one of the best rebounders I have ever in my life seen with my own two eyes. And he still gets this lazy, um, this lazy moniker, this, this label of not giving a lot of effort. And that's an old, that's an old, um, way of thinking about him. And he's gotten a lot better. I mean, you can't like, you can't look at a guy who is, grabbing 20 20 games on a pretty regular basis and then at the same hand call him lazy because if you think he's being lazy and grabbing 20 20 games if he's not being lazy what kind of games is he, is he supposed to be getting right. 30 30 games like i mean it's, it's just hard because people have this preconceived notion about him and it's very difficult for him to shake that in spite of all the stats that are in favor of him yeah no, the pay grade's a good point as well too and just the the market and the way we evaluate bigs changes yearly right. at this point. And so it's, right. you know, now would you sign him to like at this price point where next year he's going to be making $27.1 million? No, but I think you could probably like they're the big man archetype that every team wants. Like there are only so few bigs that, that even fit that. And uh, a lot of these other, we could say the same for a lot of these other bigs where it's, you know, maybe, maybe, I'm trying to give a good example. Like, just look like the money that Clint Capella is making. Like, that was uh, spun as a bargain contract at the time. Maybe it is, but a lot of how he's assessed might be might have to do with the fact that he's not his team's second best player. He is right. there. He's viewed as their third best player. Um, and when when you're looking at the offensive pecking order, when you look at what Drummond does still need to do offensively for the Pistons at times, you know, Capella doesn't even compare. Uh, in terms of that, so that, that's a really good way of looking at it too. And it's it's impossible to when he signed his five year deal, like it was. I don't think it, it wasn't really panned at the time. It was just this is like he waited to sign it too to give the Pistons flexibility, so that was celebrated, and it was just accepted that that was his market value. And I don't know that that's probably one of the issues, one of the many issues of evaluating contracts in hindsight. Yeah, and and also it's Detroit. Like Detroit is a small market. Um, doesn't attract stars in free agency. They're not a winning franchise right now. And when he signed the contract, Detroit had to do whatever it took to to hang on to him because they saw that this dude can be something good. Um, but the problem was is that when you put the pieces around him that one don't fit or don't perform up to their expectations, then the then the team suffers as a whole because he can't by himself create offense. He's not he's not Anthony Davis. He's not Joel Embiid on offense. He's He's a solid player, but that that number, that max contract number, is going to haunt him unfairly uh, for the duration of the contract. Really, um, their defense in general finished twelfth in defensive efficiency, points allowed per hundred possessions this season. Which I think, when you when you look at their personnel, was more than a pleasant surprise. Uh, they their opponents did miss a very good amount of their open and wide open threes. It did kind of progress to uh, closer to the normal as the season went on. But is that something you look at 
Um, and then also while looking at the personnel that they have in place right now that you see as untenable where we should expect some regression last year? Or do you think their ability to just limit three-point attempts in general, uh, they were second in opponent three-point attempt rate this season, that that's something that has been underestimated or undersold um, while we've looked at what they did over the course of the regular season? Um, I I think if you bring back the roster as is, I think it's it's reasonable to expect regression. Uh, the the Pistons are very thin at um, the bigger wing, the hybrid three four kind of wings. Um, so those those players tend to do very well against the Pistons. And I I think if I had to put money on it, I would say they finish. If if you brought back the same exact roster and ran them back, I would say they finish below fifteenth. Uh, next year um but yeah like you said they got lucky a lot of the times they they were better than years past in terms of rotations but they're still not what i think is an elite defense or at least an above average defense um i'm actually surprised when you said 12th i i, I thought they were maybe 15th like between 15 and 20 um i was using cleaning the glass which filters out garbage time and i know there was some post all-star regression from them but i when i was looking and Saw that they, I've, I did a double take when I saw that they were 12. This was, yeah, this was at different points throughout the regular season and, and that they finished there. So it's, I, I think I would agree with you on that. And their best, by, by far, their best perimeter defender is Bruce Brown. Uh, yep. Just so good at really, you know, party crashing, pick and rolls. At the same time, when you've watched him play, do you see the outline of a more effective offensive player? in him anywhere and I think the reflexive response from someone like me who zooms out and is you know not covering the team on a day-to-day basis is to say he needs to develop a good three-point shot but is there you know can he be a more effective driver um, because we've seen him handle the ball a little bit uh, can they get him in spots where he's just uh, going to be more of a cutter do you see a use for him or a, a role a wheelhouse for him to develop at the offensive end because some of their lineup splits um, were less than ideal with him on the court in part because I think that th- there are long stretches where he's such a non-factor on the offensive side. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think he does need to develop a little bit more consistent of a three-point shot. I don't even know if he hit 30% this year. I want to say he hit 29 or something. Yeah, he was right um, there. 29, okay, yeah. So I, I think if he developed a little bit more respectable three-point shot, um, I think he would be a better player. But I think his strength really lies in – his strength. He's a gigantic dude for his size. He's quick. Um, I uh, talked with people in the organization um, very early on when Bruce Brown was was just drafted, and the sentiment when he walked into the practice facility was that this guy lives in the weight room. This guy is huge. He is quick. He is like strength and conditioning is not an issue for him. Um, so I I almost think that he'd be better as like a driver and cutter. Um, because he has that ability to be quick and aggressive at the rim. One of the knocks on him is that he uh, he tends to be a little bit too finessey, in my opinion, at the rim. He misses a lot of layups and stuff. I want him to finish through people, finish, like get a lot of contact, go to the line more. I think that would be the, the next reasonable step in addition to being a slightly better shooter. But if I had to pick one or the other, I'd rather him be a better driver and cutter because that seems like it would be a more attainable goal than to be a better shooter. Um, and, and also, we've seen on like on occasion, especially when he runs with a bench unit, um, 
when he drives and cuts, he sucks defenders in, and he's actually quite good at finding an open guy on the outside. Um, and if he kind of hones that a little bit more, I could see him being like a not not a full on point guard, but being that secondary playmaker on like maybe on a bench unit or something. Yeah, I was surprised just given how strong he was. I would have expected him to have finished it at a higher clip around the rim, and he was at twenty five point eight percent from three last year, which was lower than I thought. Uh, he yeah, twenty nine point five percent, I think, for the latter half of of the season, or right around there. I did think, though, that just looking at his, again, how strong he is, I would have expected him to have finished at a higher clip around the rim or to to shoot. He was under 40% on drives, and that didn't really change much after the All-Star break. Uh, I mean, he was also a rookie, though, so is this just a Mm -hmm. matter of, and maybe he was just surprised to find the ball in his hands at points when you look at the pecking order of of their offense. Is Is there anything to that? Would you expect him then to eventually just be a more consistent finisher maybe not even just as a cutter around the rim but when he does have the ball in his hands a little bit well we have to remember that bruce brown uh you know the pistons drafted two two three and d well i guess like two defensively minded wings in the second round they traded up for one um, and that was Kyrie thomas and bruce brown kind of fell into their lap um and bruce brown found his way to the starting lineup on a playoff team i think that shows his commitment to being good and and helping the team and i could see with one full off season with the pistons um how he like i think he could be something better than what he was this year um with one full one full off season of practice nba strength and conditioning nba practices um i i think he has a lot has, has a long way to go but i think the road is there for him he could definitely start next year again yeah, I mean, depending on what they do in free agency. Uh, yeah. And, and I like what you said, too, about how it it would be or you'd prefer him to focus more on the driving and cutting aspect because I think too often, and I would throw myself into this loop, that we're so guilty of just saying if, if so-and-so just develops a jumper. You know, like we right. can't just say stuff like that when it comes to wholesale. Finishing around the rim is one thing, but it's like, you know, think about what Ben Simmons would be like if he could hit pull-up threes. Like you can't, you can't just say that, that because players don't always – develop those just nuts and bolts like skill sets like that's such a such a wholesale thing to develop that we can't put too much stock in it he's still a rookie so you can say that about his jumper to a degree can you hope he'll hit league average threes on catch and shoot opportunities down the line i think absolutely but finishing around the rim is just a more realistic value proposition for someone to develop than oh he just needs a jumper right and and at that size too. I mean, we've seen people of that size be very good at the rim, uh, and and with with that quickness. Uh, so, I I just think that if he had one more off season of strength and conditioning and NBA practice, I I'd, I'd really think that he's going to come back a better player next year. This is I didn't think I was going to get to Kyrie Thomas before Luke Kennard, but uh, <laughs> and I, it's hard to answer. I feel I always when we're doing these exit interviews, I hate asking too many like pointed big picture questions because rosters can change so much between now and opening day. But do you see um, a path or a larger role for uh, Kyrie Thomas next year? Who is no, if you know why he's nicknamed Taz, by the way, I I would love to know that as well. He's 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 nicknamed Taz. Taz? Yeah. That's what it says on basketball reference. Huh? That's in my notes. Interesting. Kyrie Thomas is nicknamed Taz. Well, apparently Andre Drummond's nickname is big penguin and I've never heard anybody call him big penguin before. Uh, I I don't know where. Yeah. That's I, simultaneously I don't know where they get those from. awful and awesome at the same time. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's almost fitting. Like I'm like, I'm like, okay, I can see that. 
Um, so for Kyrie Thomas, the the wing rotation is wide open next year. Um, they have to de- they have to decide on Wayne Ellington whether to bring him back or not. Um, and they're very limited on cost. Uh, like they, I think, only have the MLE and the Bay um, to to spend on anybody. And I would imagine they they spend on wings and maybe a backup point guard. Um, but so the, the wing rotation is wide open. So if he, if he competes in the summer league and in practice, I could definitely see him having a larger role, but that really is dependent upon his development. I've seen some people on Twitter, um, namely Laz. I think he's the only one I've seen actually, who (laughs) thinks Kyrie Thomas, who, uh, he, he thinks Kyrie Thomas can play point guard. I do not see that at all. He um, I think average, I think less than two assists per game in the G League. Uh, meanwhile, he's scoring 20 plus points. So I think he's a two or three, uh, like exactly. I, if I had to project, he, he's like the, if he, if he developed a better three point shot, I could see him being like a Gary Harris. Ooh. Um, yeah, I, Gary but, Harris with length too. That'd be scary. It, Right, exactly, and and I think his defense uh, is is going to get better next year, and I think that's where his bread and butter really lies. Um, he's a better shooter than Bruce Brown, I don't think considerably, but he also got limited minutes, so we'll see. But yeah, the I mean, the the door is wide open for him. It's just whether he wants to take it or not. He certainly shot the ball better from deep in college than than Bruce Brown. Yeah. So. He, he's projected to be a three and D guy, like purely. He, I don't know what he measures without shoes. I know he's listed at six, three with him when I've in the few minutes, the very few minutes that I saw him play, uh, this season, I, he seems bigger and it's probably just because he's so long. Like, you know, you yeah, say the he's wings, a three and D wing and he's not really, you know, he's, he's not really sized like someone you want playing the two, three, but he's just, he's so long that I forget that he's not, or I did forget that he's not like six, five, six, 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 six. So I'm just looking um, at the, his draft draft profile. He's a six three guard with a huge wingspan, and they, in parentheses, put six eleven wingspan. So that's kind of that is absurd. Yeah, and and that's where his and that's kind of why he was drafted where he was, and that's why the Pistons moved up to grab him because he has enormous defensive potential. So now Luke Kennard, the player that uh, actually most <laughs> fascinates me on the Pistons more so than anybody. What most impressed you about his sophomore campaign? I think for me, it was his increased pick and roll responsibility. Yep. Um, and there was a lot made about what he was doing with pull-ups. There was an article written about his his step backs. But I just, he looks like someone who could become a consistent secondary creator for them. But what was what was what most impressed you for for about him during his sophomore season? Uh, I. I think what really impressed me was just his overall refinement of his offensive game. Um, his freshman season, he was kind of overshadowed in a, you know, for lack of a better term, because the Pistons at twelve had to choose between, um, uh, you know, Donovan Mitchell or Luke Kennard, and they chose Luke Kennard, and the thirteenth pick was Donovan Mitchell. So he got a lot of um, criticism unfairly, I think, um, even though he's a good player. Um, so. It, you know, offensively, he he did handle the ball a lot more than than prior seasons. Um, he shot the ball much better. I thought, he, like I've always seen him as like a crafty player, um, especially like in the mid range area. Um, but he showed a little bit more of that. He did a lot of more step backs and pump fakes. He 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 reminded me of like what Dwayne Wade is like, 
like towards his latter years where his explosiveness was gone, but he was very crafty, you know, around the mid range with his pump fakes and drawing fouls and stuff. And I think Luke Kennard is like a light version of that. Um, I, there's a lot of talk about him starting and I think, I think he could, he's talented enough to start, but I think his best role is actually as a sixth man. And being like the primary offensive shot, like offensive option, shot creator, um, ball handler on a second unit. Um, I, I think like Lou Williams is a good way of him being used. Like just be like the dude, like being the guy. Could Lou Williams right. start? Sure. But he needs that extra, like he needs like the keys, right? You can't give Luke Kennard the keys in a Blake Griffin offense. No, they... <laughs> The starters with him, though, or what they ended with, the the four starters that became their main guys, they played 138 possessions with Luke Kennard at a plus 44.8 net rating. So I could understand the – and their offense was just – I mean, was off the charts during that time. I could understand the, the pull to want him to start. Sure. But, but if you bring back Wayne Ellington, you you do have the flexibility to bring Kennard off the bench. I think he's he's a better defender than I think people would predict. Um he, even when he's defending Kennard. pick and rolls, he just seems a little bit grittier in those situations. Yep. Um, but you want you know you want Bruce Brown in the starting lineup just because of his defense and because of what you need to cover up when Wayne Ellington is on the floor. Yeah, and actually one of the issues with bringing Luke Kennard um, into the starting lineup, uh, and this this happened like clockwork because they've tried this maybe two or three times now over the past two years to you know bring Luke Kennard in. He's performed so well off the bench. Why not start him? Um, <laughs> Well, what happens is is that the offense in the starting unit plays well with him in because he can shoot, spaces the floor and everything. But then the, the bench unit just is horrendously bad because now there's no offensive option on the bench unit. And, you know, especially this season, Ish Smith was the primary shot creator with Luke Kennard, you know, on, you know, in the starting lineup. So it really is not great. Um, that's why I really think, like, if you bring him off the bench, like, let him just like let him just mess around and like just create shots for himself, create shots for others. He, he has, he has the ability to see the floor. Well, um, he, you know, he runs the pick and roll. Well, um, he does everything well. It's just, it's hard for him to showcase his full repertoire on, on the starting unit. Yeah. And I mean, as you, as you were talking, I looked this up, uh, the Pistons had an offensive rate of a one Oh nine, which not great, but not terrible when Kennard played without Blake Griffin. A lot of those minutes came with Ish Smith, like you said, but that's still somewhat encouraging because of how dependent the Pistons were on Griffin offensively. And that's just the the trade off of there. There is something to start your five best players, or maybe the five your your best lineup, but you do need to think about the repercussions it has on your depth, particularly when you don't really have it. Right. And, and that was one of the problems when Bruce Brown was coming off the bench and Luke Kennard was starting. Uh, there was just not, it was just nothing. It was, um, for lack of a better term, the offense on the bench unit was constipated. It just nobody was scoring. The ball was moving on the perimeter and nobody was able to penetrate or make shots. So it was just stuck. A lot of people are still going to maintain that point. Uh, the Pistons need to upgrade at point guard. Uh, they definitely, if they're not going to bring back his Smith or whether they just don't want Ishmith, they they do need a backup point guard, but they're going to say that they need an upgrade over Reggie Jackson, who's going to the final year of his deal. I have no doubt that they'll be linked to Mike Conley once he reaches the chopping block again. Mm-hmm. Um, they Maybe Drew Holiday gets thrown in there if he becomes available. 
Do you think Reggie Jackson's turnaround make that less of a priority at all, though? There are, from a distance, he, he shot the ball incredibly well from three for most of the season. He was 37.7% after the All-Star break, and he was just, I think he was higher over the last 50-something games of the season. And he looks physically better, even if he's not getting to the rim as often. Is it, is it, there more, is he, is, excuse me, I can't talk, is bringing him back a more attractive option now or do you think that that's still an area that the Pistons are going to look to make uh, a swing this offseason I think it's an attractive option still um in that there's consistency with him and playing with this this unit you know being fully healthy this season he 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 played well but I think the problem really lies in like he's he's good but he's not elite and I think this team needs an elite or near elite point guard play. And I think we saw a, a, a much better Reggie Jackson than before, but he's not elite yet. And I don't know if he'll ever be elite. Um, maybe this is what he is. And um, the the hesitation I have with bringing Conley in to replace Reggie Jackson is that contract. Because then you're looking at, Two supermax deals, you know, Conley and Blake Griffin on the same team, and then how does that impact the rest of the roster? That's my fear. Um, so, is Reggie Jackson good enough for the short term? Probably. Um, will they win? Like, will they be a top four team in the East with Reggie Jackson? Probably not. Will they be a top four team in the East with Mike Conley? I'm not sure because then you are missing out on on everything else around him. So. It's it's really hard to say in in terms like not looking at money, um, he's a decent option. I would love an upgrade, but given the financials, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, he the appeal for him. I mean, he's he's one really good. That's the appeal. But uh, he does turn thirty two in October. I've, the appeal might be he's someone you could pick up without having to trade a Luke Kennard. Who I, I look at him and see that's someone who could be the Pistons' third best player if we're keeping Andre Drummond and Griffin long term that's not when you're when you're not flush with extra draft picks or cap space and you're not a free agent destination I think there's real value in that and so if you had the option of giving up Kennard for Drew Holiday that I think Drew Holiday is again really really good is that a trade you make then though when you're mortgaging so much of your future so I could see for the Pistons specifically where the appeal of someone like Conley would come in because they're given his age injury history recent injury history anyway like you said uh that the the Grizzlies aren't going to be able to necessarily trade him as this net positive asset. Yeah, and and I think the one thing about Reggie Jackson too is that he's making I think eighteen or nineteen million next year, but it's a one year. You know, he's the, in the last year of his contract. I could see Detroit moving him for a slightly cheaper option um, and to get more space so that they can, you know, do some more ancillary moves to improve the roster. But I think. To, to just straight up improve that position will be really difficult um, without harming the rest of the team. And so then I guess that would make like wings are just like getting another an upgrade at point guard at starting point guard is less of a priority than really just shoring up the wing rotation for them. Yeah. The wing rotation is horrible right now. I mean, there it's, it's non-existent. Um, you know, you're looking at like if you looked at the the heights of all the players in the team, I think the only player that's between six six and six nine that's not a big man 
um, is Svi um, Mahai look that that sh- that shooter yeah, we got from doing doing that than I would have. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> Svi. Um, so that's a big problem, I think. And they need a lot of wings. They need to get maybe two or three wings this offseason. I don't know where they're going to get them from, but they need them. Um, and it would be nice to get a point guard upgrade, but I just, given the priorities, I think the priority lies on on, on the wing rotation. Knowing that they're at best, that their their best chip, uh, offseason chip, is going to be that non-taxpayers MLE. Do you have any must target free agents for them? Uh, they need to get a, a, a wing who can shoot and make open shots. Um, I, I, I think, I think maybe getting like, I mean, I don't know who's who's available, but I think Seth Curry is available. I was I was interested in him uh, last year. He can play the two, um, and you don't really need underrated si- defender too. Underrated defender, and I I would like them to see, like I I would want them to either spend a draft pick or maybe develop Kyrie Thomas way more, but they need more defensive wings as well. So, um, like, maybe, I'm not sure he's available, but I know Reggie Bullock played really well on, on both ends uh, for the Pistons before he was shipped off. If they can bring him back, that'd be fantastic because he kind of fits the bill, knows he runs the offense with them, he knows the he knows the team. be nice to bring them back. But then again, like, you're looking at the financials, right? And wing is such a, a priority for a lot of teams that... I, I feel like they'll be priced out of a lot of wings that fit the Pistons well. Because I mean, they only have, you know, what, 9 or $10 million to play with for the entire offseason. So I'd, I could see a guy like Reggie Bullock getting $10 million per year from some team. Right. You don't want to burn, you know, your entire or most of your mid-level right. reception on Reggie Bullock. Like, that's not the right. player that you want to do that for. Right. But at the same time, I don't know where another player would be that would provide a consistent offensive threat from three as well as play defense for under 6 million. You know, it's just, it's hard. Some names that sprung to mind for me, and this was, I I was operating under the guys that they, they want to split up their mid-level exception. Um, Garrett Temple would be interesting. I like that. Um, This is, I I don't know how much we can read into his performance in Minnesota when he actually got playing time, but Luel Dang could be an interesting name for them to look at. Uh, I don't know what Daniel House is going to end up costing. He might be one of those guys. He's a restricted free agent, and those are those are tough to get in general. But when you're only working with a mid level exception, um, that that could be a name to look at. I don't know if they would be interested in bringing James Ennis back, but that's probably the tier of free agents that they would be targeting. I would believe because I don't know. Again, you don't want to. You know, Damari Carroll's out there, but do, I don't know that you want to pay even Damari Carroll $6 million per year. I think objectively, yes, but when you're the Pistons, I don't know that you have – you don't have the, the cap equity to necessarily devote $6, 7000000 million to that one player. Right, and and that's why I, I really do believe that the best route for the Pistons to get better is via trade. Um, I was looking at teams with um, with wings that aren't really playing either that well or – you know, not really in the rotation. And I was looking at Alan Crabb and I'm, and I'm wondering like how much would it take to get Alan Crabb off of the nets? Cause he would be a player that fits well. He can shoot. Um, he's a little bit bigger of a wing. He's making a little bit too much money, but if the Pistons threw like John Luer, who's making, I think nine or 10 million plus Langston Galloway, that kind of makes the salaries equal. Maybe they throw an extra something, you know, a second round pick or something to them, or I don't know, but I'm just trying to think like, of of wings 
on teams that aren't really being utilized to their fullest potential. Yeah, Alan Crabb's interesting because I, I think if the Nets were to move him, it would be to clear up cap space. And so if you have a team like the Pistons that's willing to take on his salary, it might be easier to find a home. And maybe it ends up being not just a three-team trade, but a four-team trade. It might be easier to find right. singular homes for Lure's $9.5 million salary and, and certainly Galloway's $7.3 million salary. Right. Uh, who is the the more important in-house free agent for them, though? Uh, Wayne Ellington or Ish Smith? And I think those are the only two biggies for them, unless you're really just caught up in the Zaza Pachulia and, and Jose Calderon <laughs> bandwagon. No, those two need to go. Uh, Zaza and Jose. Um, I, they're both, and they both showed it, they're both kind of not really helping all that much. <laughs> um, the, I mean, I don't know how much we expected them to help in the first place, but... It was good to see uh, Jose Calderon and Dwayne Casey together again, though. Yes. Say that. I mean, maybe his value was off the court more than on the court, but on the court it was pretty bad, um, and same with Zaza. <laughs> um, but I think out of the two, I I really have to go with Ish, Ish Smith, because really? it's just so – yeah, it's just really hard to find um, consi- like point guards that are, one, available, and two, know the offense. Like The one good thing about Ish is that he might – he could very well come back on a cheaper deal than what he is on now. I think he's making $6 million. Um, he could come back cheaper than what he is now. He knows the offense. He knows the team. But I do think it'll be either in this draft or next draft, the Pistons should try and target a point guard, like a young point guard, um, either in the draft or um, or in free agency and start to groom them to kind of take the reins. Um, but yeah, like Wayne Ellington is nice. But again, I, th- I, th- I think that the Pistons will be priced out of him. Um you know, it's just it's difficult for me to see him getting anything less than six million. That's, so they do have yeah. a pathway though to keep keeping him and still having the the full MLE, which I guess helps that. And if he's only if you're going to pay him what you just paid him in the six million dollar range, then I guess that's that's probably fine. I mean, he just I, didn't he just shoot a career high percentage around the rim too, or came close? No, second highest clip of his career. He was he shot sixty seven percent around the rim in two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen. That I did not know, but it, you're right. There's probably definitely value in that. That if you can get him for that price range, I might personally want to pay him a little less. But you do have a path to carrying his cap holds and still having the full MLE. So if that doesn't really harsh your plans in in that way, then I guess that would make some sense. And you don't have any. I don't know what. Wayne Ellington's going to get. I thought he was going to get more than he did, uh, what than he actually did when he returned to the Heat. So uh, teams just might not see as much value in his his shooting when you look at what he gives up on the defensive end. Right, and I think one one thing with Ish is that he like when the when the Pistons' offense gets kind of stagnated, he comes in and he pushes the pace, um, and that creates looks. Um, for like in some cases, in some cases that kind of works against them because then they just quickly miss shots and it doesn't really help anything. But having that change of pace guard is, is beneficial. And if, if they can bring him back for a reasonable salary, I don't see it being the worst thing in the world. So if I had to choose one or the other, I, I, I think I would go there, Smith. Um, now you mentioned something that was interesting to me about them maybe looking for just a, like a point guard flyer in the draft that they could develop. Are you, you know, Forget about names. This is neither of us are draft Knicks, uh, at least at this stage of the game. Would, is that what you're using there? I think they're going to have number 15. Uh, is that what you would prefer them to use their first rounder on as an actual point guard? Or are you still just 
like let's just continue to take flyers on wings. No, I would um I like I think my my number one choice would be a point guard. Um the only problem is from what I'm hearing, I don't think any of the top 3 point guards are going to be available at 15. So I don't want the Pistons to reach out of there. Like I don't want them to 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 reach for some random point guard and then miss out on a good wing that's sitting there at 15. I'd rather them take a good wing that that was that can contribute now. Um the Pistons don't have time for a project unless it's at the point guard position. So yeah, I mean point guard is my first priority, but I I I really think a a, a decent wing is going to fall to them at 15. The prospects that I know I'm already going to fall in love with mid to end of the first round are Keldon Johnson, shooting guard from Kentucky, and Cameron Johnson, a wing from North Carolina. So those would be names that I just randomly circle for them because I, I can tell right now that those are going to be those. This is going to be the year that I end up caping for guys like that. Right. If, if but, you yeah. – oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if you had to guess, though, and especially because you mentioned that their best way to upgrade the roster meaningfully might be via trade – who do you think is most likely to be dealt from this roster over the offseason? Um, it's it's definitely going to be um, somebody on an expiring deal, um, either John Lewin, Langston Galloway, possibly Reggie Jackson. But if we're not talking about like salary dump moves, um, I really could see them moving on from Kyrie Thomas. Um, I, I feel like he could be a sweetener in a deal for somebody better. Um, cause you know, although he has a lot of potential in a position of need for the Pistons, it's easier to replace him than it is like Luke Kennard, for example. Right. And if they're looking for any sweetener, I think he would be the best option for that. Possibly Svi as well. Um, I think Svi would probably return a lot less than Kyrie would, but I, unless it nets like a really, really good point guard, um, I don't see Luke Kennard being traded. Because that was a sticking point. When the Pistons were interested in, in Mike Conley at the deadline, the sticking point was they wanted Luke Kennard and then the Pistons refused to include him. So Good unless it's a point guard... That. Yeah, and I think that's a great move. And I and I think that's different about this regime versus last. I think last regime would have easily thrown Luke Kennard in for Mike Conley. <laughs> um, and this regime was a little bit more savvy in that sense about it. So, yeah, I would say... Probably Kyrie Thomas if we're not looking at a salary dump move. Would you give up Kennard in a Drew Holiday trade? I wouldn't. I think that's probably fair. I don't. I honestly don't have an answer to my own question, so I, that's. But I would say that that's probably a fair take there. Although I yeah, do I wonder what Drew Holiday would be like in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it's just hard to tell because Drew Holiday also like would be given the keys to like a primary point guard position and. And I think his best role is kind of as that combo guard, and that you know playing two more often than one. So I don't know. It's 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 really hard to tell. Um. Well, Sham, I appreciate you letting me commandeer so much of your time. I I enjoyed talking Pistons with you. I hope you yeah likewise enjoyed it as well. Uh, if you guys are not already following Sham on Twitter, you need to do so immediately. He is at shams sham god one of the best twitter handles out there it's at (laughs) s-h-a-m-s-h-a-m-m-g-o-d he is also the co-founder of motor city made so go ahead and follow them at mott city made and be sure to listen to his podcast he's a co-host of the two gods and a goose podcast that you um, can check out they're on itunes they from what i can tell they were also wherever else you basically consume your podcast so 
Um, be sure that you're following him and checking out his work, uh, whatever you can. He's a great, great Pistons mind and great thoughts on the NBA in general too. When if you follow him on Twitter, uh, please remember to follow at Hardwood Knox. Uh, they are at Hardwood Knox. You can follow me at Dan Favalli, and you can follow Andy at Andrew D. Bailey. Until next time, I leave everybody with the shout out to Kyle Anderson, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.